We are North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. News, arts, ideas, where you are. On air at 91.1 and 90.9, streaming worldwide at krcb.org. You can also find us on Comcast channels 961 and 202. It's a minute after 10 o'clock, and it's time for Percussion Discussion. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Percussion Discussion here on KRCB-FM. I'm your host, Jim Laveroni, for this show that focuses on drummers, percussionists, and all the instruments of rhythm that move every genre of music along. Tonight, we have a special treat in store for your listening pleasure. I'll be playing a pre-recorded interview with multi-instrumentalist, composer, producer, teacher, author, and award-winning drummer Thomas Lang. Quote, to play the unplayed, unquote. That is the self-proclaimed lifelong aspiration of drummer-producer Thomas Lang. Thomas has dedicated his life to the exploration of all things drum. A native of Vienna, Austria, Thomas took up the drums at the tender age of five, He's a founding member of the Los Angeles-based progressive avant-garde metal trio, Stork. As a session musician, Thomas has played for such artists as Falco, John Wetton, Peter Gabriel, Tina Turner, Kelly Clarkson, Mick Jones, The Commodores, George Michael, and Bonnie Tyler, to name just a few. Despite his grueling touring and rehearsal schedule, Thomas remains committed to a rigorous daily practice schedule. Quote, I religiously follow a constantly evolving practice routine. It's not glamorous, but for me, daily practice is a principal source of growth and inspiration in my playing, unquote, says Lang. The interview that follows took place in the conference room of a hotel in Thousand Oaks, California. 
This was after yours truly attended a Thomas Lang drumming boot camp in February of this year. Three days of intensive, rigorous, and demanding drum exercises that was entertaining, inspirational, motivating, and educational. I and 14 other students had the opportunity and pleasure of learning from the master himself. Double bass pedal techniques and exercises that made you cringe, as well as marvel. Warm-up exercises that entitled you to avoid the gym at the hotel for the week, and much more. Thomas Lang is a truly remarkable man. Not only is he the most technically proficient drummer that I have seen and spoken with, he is immersed in the world of drums from every aspect. He and his publicist-slash-wife are involved in every aspect of production for his business of drumming, from boot camps to clinics to big drum bonanzas to DVDs. They've got it all covered. And to top it off, they are down-to-earth and wonderful people. We'll be talking more about the upcoming big drum bonanza slated for July 3rd through the 7th in Camarillo and Oxnard. And in the meantime, we will begin playback of the interview And as usual, I'll intersperse songs featuring Thomas in between segments. For those of you with these drummer-tuned ears, listen specifically for the sound of the tom-toms. You might be surprised to learn that the sound is most probably the double bass drums played at incredible speeds with the feet, rather than the hands on the sticks. We begin the interview with a summation of Thomas's early years and development of his style. Sit back and enjoy Thomas Lang here on Percussion Discussion. I actually grew up just outside of Vienna in a small town called Stockerau, which was almost like a suburb of Vienna, very close. I went to school there and took my first drum lessons there with a local drum teacher who happened to be um, the percussionist, chair of percussion at the Vienna Symphonic Orchestra that lived a little outside of Vienna. So... I, at age four, I started bugging my mother to uh, get me drum lessons and buy me a drum. And uh, she didn't until I turned five. She thought it was a bit of a fad, you know, I wanted to be a, I don't know, pilot and an astronaut and a drummer and all those things. But at one point she took it a little more seriously because I kept nagging her. And and she bought me a, a drum when I was, when I just turned five, actually. And I took lessons immediately because she thought if she got me lessons at the same time, it would probably turn me off immediately and uh, there'll be peace and quiet in the house again. But that didn't happen because I had a fantastic teacher who, you know, made it fun and very inspiring for me to play music. And um, and that was in my local village in Stuttgart, just outside of Vienna. I stayed with the teacher for a long time, eight years or something. Mm-hmm. He recommended me then to another teacher who was more of a drum set player, who then prepped me to uh, get an audition uh, at the Conservatory of Music in Vienna and at the Music Academy, the University of Music in Vienna. And I did that audition, got accepted, and graduated very young at 18. So I ended when I was 13. I was the youngest graduate there. And... Uh, had great teachers and got a proper sort of, you know, musical education in Vienna. 
uh, you know, classical training and jazz. I played a lot of jazz, big band combos, everything. Studied jazz and classical at the same time. So that was my that's my sort of you know educational background. I I happened to see a drummer on TV when I was four years old. That's what sort of got me hooked. Uh, it was intrigued because the guy was the only person in the band sitting down. Everybody else had to stand up. I thought it was cool. Uh, he looked like the boss. Uh, and he was counting off the tune, and everybody was paying attention to him, and, and he was basically conducting the whole um, show. And it intrigued me, and coincidentally, a couple of days later, I saw a drummer play live in my local village. And I walked up to the drum set and stood in front of the kick drum, and I was four years old, and the kick drum was almost my size, so it was a just incredibly... You know, a profoundly uh, important experience for me because that power from that instrument, from that bass drum, just I felt the air move and it touched me and it impressed me and I was hooked right then and there. So uh, that was at age four and I started playing and as soon as I found out that making music was a valid sort of option, yeah, a career option, or, uh, you know, I, I pretty much decided. No, I'll do that because that's fun. It seems like, you know, this is a great job to play music, you know, to work with a lot of different musicians, play different styles of music, travel the world, play, perform in front of people, and just play drums. You know, it sounds like a lot of fun. So as soon as I realized in my mid-teens or early teens that that was a job, you know, I just went for it. And I had no plan B at all, ever. Uh, to me, there wasn't an alternative. I didn't want to have a plan B. You know, to me, it wasn't... There was no alter alternative to this. Right. And there still isn't. You know, today, I mean, it's, I think, if you found, you know, find your calling, you know, and then you're passionate about it. If you love it, if you love doing what you do, you do, usually do it pretty well because you like to do it often. And doing it often means that you get better quickly. And, uh, and that's what happened to me in my youth, you know, in my whole practicing and playing career. I always enjoyed it. It never seemed like a chore, like a difficult thing to do at all. And um, and I, I started working very early, you know, while I was still studying music in my late teens, I was already working and touring and playing with a lot of local bands, so I was still in high school. And was this still in the uh, in the region where you lived? or Yeah, it was more sort of regional at that time. Uh -huh. um, and as soon as I left high school, I got my sort of uh, my diploma from the academy as well, from music school. As soon as that happened, I went on tour. I had been playing with people in local clubs in Vienna and jazz clubs. And one of the guys that I was jamming with and playing with in a few local bands had a side project, uh, like a, a more commercial side project. That this guy was a bass player, and his name is was Hans Hölzl, and his side project name was Falco. And of course, we had a huge hit with Rock Me Amadeus in the you know mid '80s, and he happened to be my buddy, you know, growing up. So when he needed a band, you know, he called me and said, "Hey, you know, I've got this other project. Are you interested? It's more commercial." And I said, "No, I'm not interested. Sorry." <laughs> and he said, "Come on, check it out. It's pretty good. You know, we'll get to tour a little more and maybe have some success." And I, oh, okay. So we did. Then we ended up being number one here in the states with that album for like four months you know it was crazy it was crazy 1986 so that got a lot of other things moving obviously and and, uh, and the 80s things were still very different in the music industry with budgets and, uh, and there was no there was no illegal downloading or illegal sharing or stealing of music like today so budgets were much bigger 
and uh, so we were touring nonstop all the time, all over the world. And through Falco, I made a lot of other connections in the music industry internationally. So as soon as I started working with him, I moved out of the regional area in Austria around Vienna because up to that point, I was all was just doing clubs and little jazz gigs and brunches and what have you. You know, playing with people from my college. Uh, forming little, you know, trios and quartets, playing jazz standards and real book stuff, and you know, playing with a big band in Vienna. That was what I do. What I did, and as soon as I started working with Falco, we started touring internationally. In fact, I mean, literally right out of high school, I went to uh, did a, to do a tour in Japan with him, and we did the Budokan for like ten nights in a row for thirty thousand people a night, and did a. 18 months world tour. Stumbled up the ladder, really, from then on, because I was very lucky. I started writing music with Hans, with Falco, very early on, and the songs, some of the songs were hugely successful, so it gave me a little bit of a, uh, you know, I had the luxury to be choosy about what I wanted to do and what not, and I could afford to, to pick and choose people I wanted to work with and pursue my interests musically and spend a lot of time developing my skill, practicing, etc., etc. I didn't ever have to do any other work. So not that I ever wanted to do other work. Uh, like I said earlier, there was never a plan B for me. It was being a musician full-time. No matter if I had to struggle or not, that's what I wanted to do. And maybe because of that attitude, I intuitively made the right decisions and, and, and simply chose to play as much as I could, no matter whether there was money involved or not. As, as If I could learn something and meet new people, I'm, I was doing it. And I was like in 13, 15 bands at the time, and I played literally the 30 shows a month with 15 different bands, you know. So I was doing anything and everywhere all the time for hardly any money as long as I could learn something and meet people. And that's, of course, how I met Hans and Falco and got to naked with him. And once I started touring with him more internationally, yes, people recognized my name, they, they met me in person, and they liked the way I played. Um, they liked the fact that I was sort of, you know, involved also in production and writing with Falco. I got work as a producer out of that and as a co-writer on other people's records and, of course, as a sideman musician. Um, and, and I always wanted to play with as many people as possible and as many different styles as possible. So that was really always my interest. I didn't want to just do one band and one thing. I never wanted to do, like, a session cat or anything, but I wanted to play different styles of music with different people.
Sekunde, es war irgendwie No Plastic Money anymore Die Banken gegen ihn Woher die Schulden kamen, war wohl jeder Mann bekannt Er war ein Mann der Frauen, Frauen liebten seinen Punk Er war ein Superstar, er war so populär Er war zu exaltiert, genau das war sein Flair Er war ein Virtuose, war ein Rocky-Doll Und alle suchten noch heute Captain Rock Me up, my
house is like a person. The body, the skeleton, and the soul are inseparable. One of America's most celebrated architects comes to life in Worksong. Three Views of Frank Lloyd Wright by Jeffrey Hatcher and Eric Simonson. Starring Robert Foxworth and Amy Brenneman. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. L.A. Theatre Works. Here on KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa, Saturdays at 6. It's 10.30. You're listening to Jim Laveroni on Percussion Discussion. And tonight, a special treat as I play an interview I recorded with Thomas Lang, award-winning drummer and just a great, great man. In our next segment, I asked Thomas about playing other instruments and the importance of being able to read music. In addition... We talked about the balance one has to achieve when trying to be everything to all people as a musician, as well as developing his own concepts for practicing and playing. Absolutely. I mean, for me, um, my mother said she'll buy me a drum and get me drum lessons if I learn a real, quote-unquote, <laughs> instrument as well. So I, I, I played, started playing piano and taking lessons the same time I started playing the drums. And that helped me throughout my career with writing, with production, just the general understanding of music, uh, speaking the same language as other musicians in the band and understanding what they're talking about and where they're coming from. And yes, especially with writing and co-writing. And which had a big effect on my career over the years because that is really where my interest always lied in writing, co-writing, production, not just in playing. And that's also a big part of what people, I think, appreciated and still do appreciate it in, about me. It's not just about drumming, what I do. Um, and it, I think also that playing other instruments has, affects the way I play the drums very much. Um, and, you know, it helped me, you know, in my career, absolutely. The other aspects of the, playing other instruments, or at least knowing a little bit about other instruments, because I play bass as well, I play a little guitar, and it helps a lot with production, of course, and it helps uh, to understand other musicians' problems, issues, you know, arrangements, uh, capabilities, limits, and things like that. And in the early days, you'd never turn down a gig? Never. Never. No. Unless I was... You know, quadruple booked. Right. You know, and I I was double booked all the time. I'm of of a different background in school. I never had this sort of gig paranoia that a lot of people have. And I understand where they're coming from as as musicians. But without trying to sound arrogant or anything, I never felt like um, you had to do, you know anything and by any means you know um, just to please you know somebody who really isn't uh, in a position to dis- make decisions or be responsible for you or your life or your career or anything like that I know a lot of people who gave you know, out on a limb and, and way past the call of duty to to please people who have really no position to make relevant decisions for them and often they're damaging not only their relationships with their families, uh, but also their reputation by doing that. Because it can often come across as being a complete prostitute. You'll do anything for anybody. And that's not good for anybody's image. You know, and not that I say, well, you shouldn't try. You should always try. You should always commit to what, you know, and do what you committed to. Uh, But 
some people do stuff that I find is is a little too hardcore, you know. Especially you have a, a, a life besides being a sideman in music, like being a parent or a producer or a writer or something like that. So having another business aspect in music, I think in those in that situation you have to you have to um, you know consider your your own life and circumstances a little more. You know, I mean, I remember I, that happened to me as well. The same thing with the volcano in, in Iceland. I was stuck in London and I had to cancel stuff. But it was simply too dangerous to fly. It was simply too difficult to get any kind of travel arrangement to fly anywhere at that point. So I just said, I just made some phone calls and said, can't come to the session. I had to cancel some sessions in London. Was, hey, listen, I can't and come, everybody so. said, exactly, everybody said, that's cool, you know, we understand, no problem, we'll do it another time. You know, it saved me from getting a heart attack, it saved everybody else from, you know, freaking out whether I'm going to be there on time or not, and, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to call it. Sometimes you just have to call in and say, you know what, I could try, you know, to really somehow get over there, to get over there, to get, you know, from A to B to C to D to D to get to back to B, but you know what? It's going to cost you too much. It's going to be too complicated, too dangerous, too stressful for everybody involved. Let's just call it. So I was always that person. Not that I wasn't trying or wanting to do it, but sometimes you have to look at the situation exactly and say, you know what? It's probably not worth it for anybody. I'm not talking about myself, but I don't want to put that responsibility or stress on somebody else as well. So, and... Uh, and I often, in my career, and I still do, is sometimes you just have to say no, or sometimes you just have to say, honestly, I don't think it's worth it for anybody. You know, think about it. And then people will go, thank you for saying that. Thank you so much. Because you know what? If you had said yes, and yeah, you were definitely coming, then we would have all had to come too. Well, I started to, to develop my own ideas and concepts very early on. My first teacher was amazing. He, the first thing he did in the first four weeks of me taking lessons from him was he taught me how to practice before he taught me how to play and what to play so for the first four weeks he taught me what it means to practice because usually when musicians take the first lessons they go to the teacher they, he shows them something and he sends them home and, say, and says uh, come back next Wednesday show me what you practice they have no idea what to do at home they guess for 20 years what that means and I, they guess it means repeating what the teacher did in class and kind of like remembering what they learned in class and uh, and coming in to check with the teacher and check in with him once a week. My teacher was very different. He taught me, he gave me very strict rules. He taught me how to practice from day one. I, st I paid attention to those rules and uh, remember we did this in the class and I, he, he taught me the most basic rules of practicing and concepts of practicing, how to save time, how to practice efficiently, uh, how to set short-term and long-term goals, etc. And that worked for me. So very early on in my playing career, I was able to analyze what I was doing because I was given the rules and the, the tools to do so. And I started analyzing my playing, comparing it to my idols, and realizing that the, uh, the people I like, they're all quite unique. They all speak their own drum lingo. They're quirky and weird and different or 
they're just extremely virtuoso type drummers or band leaders. They all have something very special about them, something very unique and individual, which is always sort of a personal touch, a personal style, a personal flair and flavor. And I like that the most about any musicians, especially drummers. So I started very early to develop my own ideas and pursue actively my own creative sort of identity, if you like. And my teacher, again, encouraged that. He said, listen, if you can show me something next week that I haven't heard before, I'm going to be really impressed. And that was a huge challenge for me. I'm like, I'm going to try and impress him, you know, and I'm going to look for something to play that he hasn't heard before. And simply but in a playful way, by doing this regularly with my first teacher, I realized what I really want as a drummer is to play stuff that I haven't heard before, not what my idols are playing, but stuff that nobody's playing. And literally to try to play the unplayed, to make up my own stuff, you know, and, and find my own sounds and concepts and techniques, if necessary, to produce those sounds and play those concepts. So, and that, literally, the creative process was always my passion and the drive behind everything I, I did on the drums or in music in general. It's the fact that I love to be surprised when I hear music. I love the element of going, what is that? You know? And seeing somebody play and go, wow, that, that's just, I've never seen that before. That's amazing. Somebody had an idea, practiced it, you know, and now is performing it. There is, it's news. It's awesome. And that's how, you know, how, you know, art happens when somebody creates something that wasn't there before for everybody else to appreciate and maybe criticize or analyze or give them something to think about. And that was always my intention and the drive behind everything that I do is to create something that's a different, new, interesting, intriguing, provocative, whatever you want to call it, but that's something that's, that inspires thought and comments and some sort of feedback from an audience.
I'm Benjamin Herman. Join me for a jazz journey across Europe. This week, D.D. Bridgewater kicks it off with an all-star band at the North Sea Jazz Festival in Rotterdam. Then from Slovenia, promising young talents of the European Jazz Orchestra and Michael Moore's fragile quartet on stage in Amsterdam. Don't miss our next European Jazz Stage. European Jazz Stage here on KRCB-FM, Saturday on the big 91.1 FM. Well, this is a good time to tell you about uh, Thomas Lang's Big Drum Bonanza. This is an annual drum camp hosted by world-class drummer that you're listening to this evening, Thomas Lang. The intensive five-day hands-on drum camp features world-famous guest teachers and gives students a chance to enjoy small group and private lessons from some of the world's best drummers. This is going to be held July 3rd through the 7th in Oxnard and Camarillo, California. The Big Drum Bonanza 2013 guest teachers include the following. Chris Coleman, who has played with Prince, George Duke, Shaka Khan. George Kalias, who has played with Niall. Stanton Moore, who was interviewed on this show, who plays with Galactic. Virgil Donati, who has played with Planet X. Alan Holdsworth and Steve Val, Dave Elich, who has played with the Mars Volta, John Dett, who has played with Slayer, Anthrax, and Testament, and then Thomas Lang. There are intense interactive lessons with Thomas Lang in the style of his award-winning drumming boot camp, as well as group and private lessons with the featured guest teachers. All students will work with all the teachers. In 2013, the Big Drone Bonanza will be held at the Courtyard Marriott Hotel, Camarillo, California, and at the world-famous Drum Channel Studio in Oxnard, California. Students will also have a chance to participate in a variety of teaching sessions and will be able to participate in a live The Drum Workshop Factory Tour to see how drums are made, and there'll be plenty of opportunity to learn all about drums. I went on that tour, and it is fabulous. Very, very fascinating. And uh, DW makes some wonderful drums. You'll learn all about drums, drumming, drum manufacturing, the music business, how to practice, and all imaginable drumming techniques taught by some of the world's most accomplished drummers in a small and exclusive classroom setting. For more information, I encourage you to go to www.musomart.com. I also want to make another announcement, a little bit off the topic, but we want to give a public service uh, greeting and announcement. Mambos to Mambos, a family fundraising ride for the Sebastopol Union School District Arts and Music Program, Saturday, May 4th. 2013 free pizza at both mambo's locations sign up at mambo's sebastopol on event day or before the ride goes from 10 30 until 1 p.m halfway refreshment station and live music and i mention this not only because of the psa but but because of the live music uh the mambo's in santa rosa on mendocino avenue will be featuring the uh, I know this. I know this for a fact. The Flying Eagles Jazz Band, 
Dixieland jazz, New Orleans-style jazz, and they have a fabulous, fabulous drummer, I understand. Yours truly will be on drums, Mambos to Mambos. This family fundraising ride Saturday, May 4th. We'll be playing from 12 until 2. And all your donations go to a great cause, the Sebastopol uh, Union School District Arts and Music Program. Couldn't be better than that, ladies and gentlemen. Call me here at the station if you want more information. That's 707-584-2020. You are listening to KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa, News Arts Ideas, where you are. On air at 91.1 and 90.9, streaming worldwide at krcb.org. You can also find us on Comcast channels 961 and 202. You're in the middle of percussion discussion with a recorded interview with prolific drummer Thomas Lang. And in this next section, I talked to Thomas about how the use of double bass evolved for him. In addition... We talked about his many roles as a producer, educator, composer, musician, author. What job did he enjoy most? And uh, the songs that I'm getting for the playlist, uh, I want to mention that uh, they are uh, available for purchase off the Internet. Something Along Those Lines by Thomas Lang, Mediator, Thomas Lang, and Stork featuring Thomas Lang. So those are some of the uh, cuts that I'm playing off tonight's show. Um, In terms of this next segment, it's important to indicate that I met Thomas at a drum clinic in San Rafael at a music store. And uh, he was putting on a drum clinic uh, for electric drum kit. And I thought he was just fabulous. Obviously, you can hear the music. You can hear what a musician he was. And just a nice, nice guy. Gave him my card for the radio station. Told him I'd love to, uh, to talk to him, have an interview with him, sit down and chat with him. And he looked at the card, and he had a great reaction. He looked up at me, and he said, you have a show about drums and percussion? (laughs) And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, he looked at me, and he said, I'm going to have my wife give you a call in about a week. And I thought, okay. And Elizabeth, his wife, called, and through that connection, um, particularly Elizabeth, who is uh, Thomas's publicist, set up some great interviews, including Billy Cobham, uh, Dion Dublin, uh, Mike uh, Dolbear. So um, the uh, reason I bring all this up is because in this next segment, you'll hear him talk about his reaction with the, uh, with the radio show. So you're listening to Percussion Discussion, and we continue with Thomas Lang. When did you start with the double bass uh, pedals? I started actually quite early, um, probably in my in my early teens. And you know what? I, it happened completely by mistake because I was practicing in my parents' basement on the uh, acoustic drums too many hours a day, up to the point where my parents said, you know what, we got to get him one of those silent drum sets. So <laughs> we went to a drum store in Vienna and... They bought me a Remo practice kit, the old one with the tunable drum heads. And we took it home, and, and we realized at home when we unpacked it that some of those pads were cracked, broken. Uh, you couldn't tune anymore, that the heads didn't fit properly, they were damaged in transport. So 
We went back a couple of days later and showed it to the guy, and the guy said, oh, we're so sorry. We don't have any replacement you know, pads here, but we have an, an older kit sitting in the back here in the store. You can just have it. You know what? And just flip those, switch the broken pads with the ones from the other one. And, but because they gave me a complete second drum set, I had two bass drum pads. So I set it up to make it look like a big drum set with the two bass drums, but I only had one bass drum pedal, of course. Um, and my left hi-hat pedal, but I had a bunch of pads, and it kind of looked like a large drum set with the two pads there. And I was practicing on that for a while until, at one point, uh, a, my teacher, the local drum teacher, said I could borrow this, the bass drum pedal until the next lesson, and I could actually set it up at home and play the two bass drum pads, and I just fell in love with it. And asked for another bass drum pedal at one point, and I got a really cheap one from my uh, drum teacher. Um, and started playing with two feet. What I really enjoyed the most when I first saw a drummer play, after seeing that drummer on television, um, I, and I stood in front of this guy's bass drum, I realized, you know, he was it was like a weird machine. He was using both hands and feet and doing stuff independently, and that was something that really impressed me. And I always wanted to I always looked at you know uh, playing a drum set like a bit like riding a bike. You're pedaling, you're kind of propelling yourself forward using your legs and feet, and then there's a little bell that you can ring here, and there's a brake here, and you can turn and steer right left, you know, and you can wave here, and you can stop and start. But it's the feet and the the legs that generate the power to propel you forward always. And I and the drums were kind of a bit like that for me. It was like there's the stomping and the boom and the pulse and the hi-hat and the ching and the power from the bass drum. And on top of that, there was all this other stuff. You know, so that was my approach to playing from day one. And when I got the second practice pad kit and I had the opportunity to actually try and copy what I was doing with my hands, not with my feet, I was all over it. And that was in my early teens. And I, there were no double bass drum books out there at the time. So I just took my stick control book and I thought, if it works for my hands, it's probably going to work for my feet, you know? A very simple, playful, naive approach. And you know what? It proved to be correct, you know? Whatever you can play with your hands, you can play with your feet, you know? You know what I enjoy the most, I think, is the variety of all these things. I think I would get frustrated only teaching. And I don't teach privately. I don't give private lessons or anything like that. I like teaching in a group. And... I like feedback from people, and I guess that's part of the reason why I do these camps. First of all, because I'm not teaching, I do get a lot of requests to teach, and I, I do clinics, but when you do a clinic, it's never a, a real rela relationship with the audience. You perform for a short amount of time in front of a large audience. In a camp like mine, I perform for a long period of time for a tiny audience of maybe 20 guys or 25 guys and you build up relationships with people you know you get to know people you stay in contact it becomes a whole different thing it has a different dynamic i like that about teaching that you know that it's more about relationships rather than a performance you know where a teacher says do that go home show me next week i was never into that so much yes i enjoy it but i think what i enjoy the most about my job in general is the fact that you can be creative on many levels, you know, I, I'm creative when I write music and I can come up with songs and ideas and patterns and whatever. I can be creative when I play the drums. I can be creative when I uh, produce a record 
or when I write lyrics or write with, uh, work with a lyricist or with a co-writer or co-producer, I, I can get creative with music videos, with the publicity side of things, with the promotion side of things, with artwork on albums. You know, all these kind of things are sort of a creative outlet for me. So that's the, the, the most fun of the job or the combination of all the jobs and the different aspects. It's the fact that there's really no limit to your creativity. If you want to get creative, you can in many different ways. You know, I, I, I didn't think that, first of all, there was a market for it on national public radio, which is amazing. I know. It's amazing. And I was extremely impressed that there was somebody who felt passionate about the drums to actually go out there and put a, a show about drums on the air. It's, it's, a, it's a huge thing, I think. It's very important for the drumming community. I think it's important for media in general to have you know shows that are dedicated sort of to a niche market like that. Um, and and I was extremely intrigued because I want to support it. I mean, I'm all about supporting the drumming community to to inspire you know kids and young the younger generation to play an instrument. And of course, in my case, I'm happy to inspire people to play the drums. I think learning an instrument is a wonderful thing, you know, and, and supporting music programs and music education is really, really important. And in a way, that's what you do with the radio show. You, you, you talk about music, you know, in a, in a specialized field, but it's all about art. It's about uh, music. It's about educating people. It's about interviews and, and inviting people to talk about their lives, their careers, their experiences, their music. And it's a very educational, yet also entertaining thing and that's why I was intrigued and, and impressed you know I think it's there's not enough of that
I'm Bill Moyers. This week on Moyers and Company, Glenn Greenwald peels back the layers that reveal what the Boston bombers, drone attacks, and secrecy in government have in common. If people are able to operate in the dark, it is inevitable that they will abuse their power. And two old Washington hands, Thomas Mann and Norman Ornstein, discuss why they decided to speak truth to power. I hope you'll join us. Moyers and Company, here on KRCB-FM Sundays at 9 o'clock p.m. You're listening to Percussion Discussion. My name is Jim Laveroni, and I'm pleased to say that we're playing a recording that I had with Thomas Lang, the prolific drummer, educator, author, award winner, composer, producer, and I'm enjoying it as I hope you are. Got a couple of calls from Octavio, good friend of mine, and a regularly a regular listener to Percussion Discussion. And although I didn't get the answer to the phone, uh, shout out to Octavio. Thank you for listening. And he uh, said, quote, this is a great interview. That guy is a, quote, monster, unquote. So, Thomas, if you're out there listening, and uh, you might be, uh, that's how you're described, as a monster. <laughs> In this next segment, Thomas and I discuss whether or not he became more of a frontman for bands he was involved with since he could write music and perhaps add more to the mix with his knowledge. We also talked about his best gig ever, what it was like having his wife as his publicist, and how many factors, not just how you play, can determine whether you get a gig or not. We also discussed integrity, or lack of, in today's music world. I, I, in some bands I did, in very few I did. Mostly it's the parts that I've involved with as a co-writer or co-producer where I actually have a say in what's going on musically. Most of, of the situations that are working as a sideman or just a hired musician or uh, even a band member um, are situations where I... I am as, as, you know, little of an ego as possible musically. You know, I, I, all I want is to play the song that the singer wrote, or the composer wrote, or you know, the producer came up with, or whatever, and play it exactly the way they want it. That's my interest and my job at the same time. It's I don't want to play anything that nobody wants to hear, ever, and it's. My my I studied classical. So, if you study classical music, it's all about reproducing perfectly without making a mistake. There's a huge challenge and beauty in that. If you can reproduce something perfectly that Mozart wrote a couple hundred, few hundred years ago, or Bach, or you know Schubert or Schumann, whoever, a piece that was written a long time with a specific intent. Everything's on the on paper. It tells you how fast it is, how loud it is, when it gets louder, when it gets faster, when the tempo changes, when you stop, when you have to be quiet. It's all there. Which key to press when, how loudly. It's all on the piece of paper. To do that, you know, and also infuse it with emotion at the same time, is a huge challenge and 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 is a testimony of absolute command and control over the instrument and a, a, a testament to a, a complete understanding of the music. And I like that aspect of, of performing. When I play with a, a band and they say to me, this is how the song goes, 
It doesn't go any other way. Here it is. That's what we did on the record. We did it because we like it like that. We thought about the drum parts. We didn't like any more fills. We liked the crash there. We liked the cymbal bell there. We liked the bass drum to play this pattern and nothing else. Then that's what I do. I don't want to do it any other way because they don't want it any other way. And that's the, the way the song goes and how it should be. That's the way it's played on the radio. That's how the people like it. And that's why it's number one in the charts. Because that's how it goes. And that's why... People like it, you know. Right. So right. my interest is to to play exactly that. It's like reading, you know, out of a classic book, you know. Even though you could add yeah. a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. You could add several. But that's layers. easy. It's easy to mix things up and 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 add your own mustard and smear it all over it. But it doesn't mean that you know it needs mustard. You know, it's it's good enough if it's just a, a turkey sandwich with mayonnaise. You don't have to put pickles and mustard and tomatoes and everything else on it too. Maybe people just want to, you know, turkey and and mayo. Gig stands out in your mind. A lot stand out, but I think the most uh, important and the one that stands out the most is the one that was the first. You know, it's your first time. <laughs> kind of, you know, you remember your first time. And for me, it was literally playing like small clubs and doing jazzy things and fusion bands and uh, working regionally, maybe sort of nationally in Austria with, with various bands and then moving on from that to touring the world, you know, and playing huge shows with the Falco and we we did, I entered sort of the, the professional uh, life as a working musician at a very high level after school. I went from studying and playing locally to doing stadiums. So it was a huge shock to my system. Uh, yet, you know, because I was so naive and I had nothing to compare that with, I, I thought that was the normal situation, to be number one, you know, <laughs> in the billboard charts. Like, yeah, I guess that's how it goes. When my friend said he's got a little side project that's kind of commercial, you know, and suddenly we played the stadiums and toured the world for 18 months, I thought, yeah, it's his little side, side project that's a little commercial, you know. So I was really dumb and naive about it. But because of that, um, you know, it was my first huge tour and, and it had the most impact on me. You know, at the first time I played huge crowds and I traveled professionally with, you know, all the crew and, and, and you know, the, the different countries and places and people and huge audiences and you realize, oh, you know, people in Japan clap differently than people in Peru, you know, and all these kind of things. And doing that for a long, many, 15 years or something, and then expanding from that one act into many other acts and working with many other people, that was a, a big, profound sort of milestone in my playing. And that's what sticks out, the first huge world tour, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you need support and you need an infrastructure that, that works and supports what you do. And, and what I and everybody who works in this field uh, does, we need you know, really functioning logistics and that has to be completely sorted out. It takes a lot of time and effort to organize everything in regards to infrastructure to support what you do, but it's really worth it and it doesn't really work without it. So I'm very happy. You know, my wife, Elizabeth, she's, we run different businesses uh, together. Like our, we have a record label, we have a you know, distribution of music, we distribute the CDs, books, my books, we sell online through our websites, we have a marketing firm, 
we distribute games, sport games, and th other things, apps and stuff like that. We work in many different areas together. And, of course, she also supports what I do as a sideman or as a musician or as an educator, etc., etc. So, you know, we're, we're a team in that business aspect. And, of course, I have, you know, I have guys like Joey who help with all sorts of things that, that are gear-related with life of ones, whether with the camps or even with uh, label stuff, uh, and so on. So, and we have interns who help us, and and of course connections worldwide with people who work with us and and help us. We're a small operation, and it's basically a boutique label, and it's a it's a small operation, but at least it's working. You know, it's working. It's it's tweaked. We know what we're doing, and we know what we want to do and what we don't want to do, and we support each other with everything that we do. Elizabeth has her own clients that I can help with, with my experience from the active performing side of things uh, and my connections, and she has her connections and experience from the world of publicity, marketing, and promotion, etc. So we work well together in that respect, and I think in today's music industry, you have to have that. You can't be sort of a, a one-trick pony. You know, people used to survive and live really well and make huge amounts of money uh, just doing one thing. Maybe not even doing that thing really well, but it was possible just just to get by or survive or be very successful just doing the one thing. Uh, that doesn't fly anymore. You have to be a jack of all trades in today's, today's uh, music uh, industry. And as you heard, you know, uh, Adam Parsons uh, say earlier, you have to be the best musician you can possibly be. You have to have, you know, the the, the technical skill, the musical experience, the stylistic versatility, you have to have reading ability, you have to have a great sounding instrument, you have to know about electronics, you have to be able to program drums, program sounds, uh, understand sequencing software, recording software, hard disk recording system, you have to be able to read music, you have to have a van, a driver's license, not be on drugs, be punctual, look good, be fit, have the cool haircut, and everything else. Because everybody does. And you need to. Without it, forget about it. You have to be able to not only perform amazingly, but you have to be able to be a, your own great art director, your own producer. You have to self-promote. You have to be able to be omnipresent in the social media. You have to be able to edit videos, edit audio, create artwork, and, uh, and, and not only perform, produce, but also manufacture and sell your own music. So it's without that there is very little um, chance to 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 so to have a really long-term career in music today things are very different it's a new paradigm well but that's the reality of it in any area of expertise or any business even in banking and in garbage disposal it's the same way if somebody walks in who kind of just rubs you the wrong way no matter how good of a garbage man he is or a banker you just want to deal with the guy who you find a little more appealing and interesting and, and, and uh, sympathetic, etc. You don't want to deal with the guy who's intuitively just not right for the gig. No matter how good a garbage man or banker or a doctor he is. You know, maybe you go to the world's best brain surgeon and he's got a giant freaking wart on his forehead. And you think, why is he not getting rid of that wart? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, are you really the best you know, brain surgeon in the world, and he can be the best brain surgeon in the world. And you're just thinking, dude, get somebody to cut that thing off. 
that's that's putting me off, if you know what I mean. And it's the same with you know the best drummer in the world and the best banker in the world. There's something it could be the most minute or irrelevant, silly detail that just throws you off. And it could be a pair of shoes. It could be you know the shades he's wearing. I think there is no integrity in any business. You know the world of business isn't the world of integrity. The world of business is literally a world of money. It's all about the money, and the only integrity or the only sort of uh, common denominator is the money and how much money can be made. It's the same in banking or in any other business. You know, it's the same in insurances or a medical, pharmaceutical business or, you know, arms, uh, weapons or, you know, entertainment. It's the same. As soon as you, you know, mention the word business, people think about money, and that's, uh, that's the priority. And music business is no different. Um, it's about making money, of course. And if it's about making money, there's usually very little integrity. Everybody wants to make the most money. Where I find there is integrity is in art. Yes, absolutely. And the music business is a completely perverted business because it combines the one thing that has nothing to do with commercial exploitation or money, art, combines art with making money. It's really perverse and weird. And of course, there's a lot of conflict and tension between those two areas of expertise. They don't go well together. Artists, they need to be inspired. They need a muse to come up with, you know, the great new song or whatever. They have these quirky, weird sort of um, needs and business needs to know exactly. Everything's about numbers and everything's pre-planned and budgeted and it's it's very mathematical and very rational versus irrational in art. And I find there's a lot of integrity in art. There's fantastic artists out there, people who are really, really incredible, super artistic, super you know, non-compromising artists. Fantastic. And I, I like, like that aspect about the music industry or the music business. And then, of course, there's the business aspect, which is I find very interesting as well, just simply from a rational point of view. Uh, but there is no integrity in that, absolutely not. I mean, you can work with people for 20 years and you have best friends, but if there's another drummer who would do the same work for less and is just as good, then yeah, I'll see you later. You know, it's, it's just a matter of fact. And often the people who have to make those decisions, you know, are told to make those decisions by, again, they're maybe not at the top of the pecking order, you know. So it's all about keeping your job, you know, saving money, doing this. And it's difficult to combine these two elements. Um, but again, in the modern world of music distribution, sales, and, and, and the way it works in the music industry, it's possible to do everything yourself. It is possible. I don't need a record company to put out a record anymore. I did 20 years ago. I had to have a record company. I didn't have a way to distribute my music or let people know that I exist. Now you have social media. You can put it out there. Hi there, I've got a band. It's called, I don't know, whatever. Check out my album. Here's a link to iTunes. It, you don't need anybody anymore, um, which is a good thing in a way because you can be, you can have integrity in both business and and art, you know, today. But on the other hand, it for the audience it's a little confusing because the average Joe has to swim through an ocean of bullshit music that is often made by non-musicians, actually up to 80% of digital music sold today or distributed is made by non-musicians. 
and they have to th swim through this ocean of nonsense to find music that's awesome, that's actually made by musicians, that's actually really good of high quality, that's artistically relevant, and so on. Um, and that's very difficult for the average Joe to decide and to define and identify great music from really crappy music. Because, you know, music made on, garb on GarageBand sounds better than a lot of music recorded by real musicians in their home studios simply because of budgets because those prefab you know uh, loops sound fantastic when they come out of garage band you know it's difficult to make them sound as good you know in your own bedroom when you're recording with microphones because you have to learn to play the instrument really well first you have to record it really well you have to get expensive microphones blah 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 mix it really well to make it sound even remotely as good as the prefab stuff you get on GarageBand. So for the average listener, GarageBand stuff that some kid makes in their bedroom sounds better than a lot of amazingly performed music, you know. So it's difficult, but at least we can now record our own music very cheaply. We can make it, we can manufacture it, we can print it, we can distribute it and sell it, we can promote and market it. But of course it takes 10 times as much effort as it used to when all you had to do is go to a record company, you know, or play a showcase and maybe sign a record deal. And then everybody took over for you and did everything for you. It's no longer like that.
Imagine never being alone ever again. Imagine sharing your innermost thoughts with your best friend, a robot. When we construct robots, we are changing ourselves. We are changing what we are willing to consider a relationship. I'm Guy Raz. The promise and the peril of our robot overlords. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The TED Radio Hour here on KRCB FM Sunday. At 4 o'clock. It's 1141. You're listening to Percussion Discussion with Jim Laveroni, and we are starting to wind down the interview with Thomas Lang. And in this next segment, I asked Thomas if he would ever consider taking on the job as a band manager. We had a band manager come into the class, the drumming uh, boot camp. Uh, Adam Parsons came in and uh, spoke very freely about being a band manager and some of the problems. And so I asked Thomas if he would ever consider being a band manager. But more importantly, Thomas then gives his advice to aspiring musicians. No, never. That is the most ungrateful and difficult job. And, I mean, I've, I've... I work with managers all the time, obviously, and uh, a lot of my friends, like Edamar managers, but it's not for me. I, it's not creative enough. There's too little of the artistic side in it. It's all about logistics, about business, and, uh, and not enough art and creativity. I think as silly and naive and simple as it sounds, uh, you have to remember why you're doing this, and you have to stay passionate and playful and naive about things and simply pursue your interests. I mean, you, not in like in a super egotistical way, but you, you have to do what feels most natural to you and you have to do what you, know, you intuitively and emotionally feel you must do. You know, creatively and also business-wise, it ties in with the creative, you know, process in music today. If you think that you want to play jazz, you know, then just go for it and make no compromises, take no prisons, no holds bars. Just go for it, full on. Enjoy it, you know. Be passionate about it. Go nuts about it, and just really indulge in it and do it, pursue it. Don't stop, and don't. No matter what people say. Everybody says, oh, my God, you know, this isn't a career. Oh, this isn't a life, and it's going to be so difficult, and this and that. And you know what? It's a pure luxury to do something you love doing, you know. And if you, if you can turn your passion and hobby into your profession, even if you're not making the most money, but simply the fact that you're doing something that you love doing, you know, 14 hours a day rather than, you know, commute for three hours to a job that you hate doing for nine hours and commute three hours back – that's total luxury, you know, to be able to, to to make a choice and pursue something you love doing and then put everything you have into it, I think then you're in good shape and you, you'll, you know, live a happy, balanced life and you're most likely to uh, going to be very successful at it because the people who love what they do usually do it really well, you know, and um, and that's my advice to anybody who plans, you know, or is trying to pursue a career in music or or plans to do that at one point, I'm just saying go for it, be passionate about it, have fun with it, don't overthink it, 
and don't let anybody tell you it doesn't work or you can't do that on stage anymore or that's not what anybody wants to listen to. It's not true. There are no rules, only the rules that you make for yourself. It's art. It's not just business. And, you know, ironically, the business only exists because of the art, because of the artists. There's no business without the people who are quirky and different and weird and crazy and just passionate about what they do, their own musical identity and their own dreams. Look around you. Look at what's successful in the charts. You know, Lady Gaga, she's, you know, crazy and nuts. And look at the costumes and the effort she's making in all the freaky fashion show stuff. Yet, look at it. It's hugely successful. Because people love the fact that she's just so nuts. Awesome, you know. And anything else that is out there, it's, you, you'll see the most successful people are the ones who make no compromises and are artistically um, relevant because they have artistic integrity and, and credibility. You can only have that if you believe in yourself and do your own thing and feel passionate about your own identity and your own dreams.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, that just about wraps up the interview with Thomas Lang. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I loved uh, editing it. I loved the story about the, uh, what was it, the brain surgeon with the wart on the forehead. That just cracked me up, cracked me up tonight every time I hear it. And so I want to thank Thomas Lang and his wife, Elizabeth, for all they've done for this show. And it's an honor to call them friends. More information about the Big Drum Bonanza, the drumming boot camp offered by Thomas Lang, and more can be found at the following websites, www.muso-mart, that's M-U-S-O-M-A-R-T.com, or www.thomaslangdrumcamp, all one word, thomaslangdrumcamp.com. Wonderful people, wonderful drummer, wonderful musician, and uh, I thank you for listening, as usual. And as always, I sign off by saying, um, (laughs) what is it that I say every time? (laughs) If you've got something important you want to say, you're never going to find a superior way. You've got to say it with percussion and of discussion, but a little bit of a different sign-off this evening. I couldn't let Thomas Lang escape without recording a promo for my show, and this time with a twist in his native tongue. So we'll play that. We'll play my theme song going out. It's the end of the line, and thank you. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we'll do it all again. Take care of each other, and stay on the sunny side of the street. Hallo, mein Name ist Thomas Lang und ihr hört Percussion-Diskussion mit Jim Lavarone hier auf KRCB-FM.
We are North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, Windsor, Santa Rosa. News, arts, ideas, where you are. On air at 91.1 and 90.9, streaming worldwide at krcb.org. You can also find us on Comcast channels 961 and 202. Democracy Now! follows immediately at 12 midnight. Stay tuned.